Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Finding Your Freedom podcast with me, Madeline. On this show, we talk all about finding your freedom. So, finding your freedom from society's beliefs, your family's beliefs, and really connecting to the truth of who you are outside of all the outside noise so that you can truly create your life. So, you know, having the community you like, the job you like, and really connecting back to that authentic self. So I'm really happy to have you guys here and super excited to bring you guys the first guest episode of 2022. Um, Still in awe that it's 2022, just can't believe it. It's been such an interesting first month of this year. Just wanted to give you guys a reminder if you've been liking the show um, and listening to it for a while, or even if it's your first episode, it would really mean so much to me if you could leave a five-star review. And if you really feel like it, leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. Um, that helps more people find the show, puts it on charts. Um, also, if you're really loving an episode, feel free to send those those episodes to friends Um, yeah, it just helps more people find the show. And I think on Spotify now, you're able to follow a show and also leave a review there. So if you listen on Spotify, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Um, so just some little business life updates. Not much has changed. (laughs) Um, really just processing how crazy everything was for a couple months of my life learning about a lot about relational patterns and I've been really reflecting on the show and I think for so long I was finding my freedom and finding my new belief systems and now really a lot of the growth that I'm doing is in relationships and I'm realizing a lot of interesting patterns in the people I attract and friends and partners and different experiences and emotions that come up so be prepared for a lot more relationship type content this year. I think that's going to be a big focus of the podcast moving forward of, you know, we start on this internal growth with ourself, you know, build self-esteem and self-confidence, which I'm going to release an episode on self-confidence soon because I think that's just such a funny term that can mean so much. But then we get into these relationships and that's where we really get to see and learn about ourselves and see how all of these things play out. So that's my update as far as business things. Right now you can book a tarot or oracle card reading if you're, you know, having some questions about your career or love or whatever it may be. I do those over Zoom. They're super fun. Um, and for right now this week, they're still $33. They'll be going up to 55 soon, but they're really fun. And if you're just dipping your toe into tarot reading and things like that, it can be, yeah, a super fun experience. So definitely check that out. And I am looking for clients to do six months of coaching with me. So you can book an exploration call on my website if you're interested in that. And yes, also we have alignment calls, which are kind of 
if you're kind of starting a new chapter, a new move, or just like wanting to really get into a good place for 2022, it's kind of a 90-minute coaching call, and then you have Voxer voice messaging access to me after that can be like a really good kickstart and kind of aligning your life and talking through your blocks and all of those things. You know, all of my coaching and tarot reading, like the basis of that is kind of the same as the basis of this business of, you know, how can we start to tell ourselves the truth and go after a life that is that is our life, that is a life that maybe we never thought was possible, that we've made ourselves small or made ourselves fit into society's mold to be acceptable and how can we start to build a life that feels better for us in terms of our relationships, the work we do, where we live, and the community that we cultivate. So really exciting stuff there and there'll be a lot of new businessy things coming soon but I want to get into today's episode and yeah I think this episode is really really important because I personally, I guess I did kind of struggle with mental health in high school and maybe even earlier than that, but, you know, I never, I guess, validated that or never experienced that and never, it never got to a point where I needed to have treatment or anything like that as a kid. And I generally think of my childhood as pretty healthy and pretty happy. Um, so I've really been wanting to have a guest on where they experienced a mental health struggle really young and kind of did this self growth work, you know, at a younger age. So Sadie was, you know, the perfect person to have on and I'm just really excited to see everything Sadie does. I mean, she's 18 years old and already such a powerhouse. Um, and you can just tell by listening to her and I think, She's going to have a really great impact in the mental health world, and I'm just really excited about that. So let me tell you a little bit about today's guest, and we can get into the episode. Sadie Sutton is an 18-year-old college freshman from the Bay Area. After receiving a year and a half of intensive treatment for severe depression and anxiety, She was inspired to share her story with fellow teens going through their own personal growth. She started, she persisted, formally, nevertheless, she persisted in 2019 and accumulated over 70 episodes, reaching over 10,000 monthly listeners. Sadie conducts impactful and inspirational interviews with subject matter experts, fellow teenagers, and social media personalities to break down the stigma surrounding mental health and inspire teens to create their life worth living. Sadie's episodes offer self-improvement tips, DBT education, and vulnerable personal experiences, making it a show for anyone struggling or interested in mental health. Sadie is a psychology major at the University of Pennsylvania and hopes to pursue a career in clinical psychology to further her impact in the mental health world. So great stuff, guys. Super excited for this episode. Don't want to wait any longer. Let's get into the episode.
All right. So the first question that I ask everyone, because it's the Finding Your Freedom podcast, is what have you been finding your freedom from? Whether that's, you know, a mindset or just something that's been giving you more freedom in your life. I think it's always changing. When I I think when it comes to my mental health journey, I was finding a lot of freedom from the belief that I would never be living the life that I wanted to. I was finding freedom from the belief that I like wasn't good enough or I wasn't deserving of love. I think now it's really more finding freedom from, I think I'm currently finding freedom from where I think I'm supposed to be versus where I am right now, whether it's what I think my college experience is supposed to look like or where I, what I think I should look like, whether it's with work or podcasting or school and just allowing myself to be and being okay with that and giving myself grace and letting things happen without feeling the need to overly like plan and get everything down to each little detail. But yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And just from like the outside and seeing like your podcast journey, like, I feel like you're always like, so on it and you know, from us taking that course together. Like, I feel like so many of us look up to you and like, you're so young and you're such like a powerhouse, but it, it's so easy to get trapped in like comparison and like, am I doing enough or it's supposed to look this way or like, you know, everything being this certain way. Yes, absolutely. Which is definitely tough. I know I listened to like one of your episodes recently and you were kind of saying that you feel like you're in like a really good place with your mental health and like kind of like the edge that you're exploring right now is more like with relationships and that's Mm -hmm. like kind of something that has been I don't know challenging or you've been exploring that how has that been going I'm just curious (laughs) yeah no I think it's interesting for a really long time my mental health and everything in life was just about becoming stable and becoming able to cope with the ins and outs of day-to-day life and experience my emotions rather than let them control me. And so now I'm really at a point where it's like, okay, I'm just living my normal life and I'm pushing myself in more like less abnormal ways, whether that's making new friends at college um, or being vulnerable with people um, outside of what my life used to look like, which was lots of treatment and lots of therapy. And so that's a big shift. Um, it's definitely like little steps, like setting little goals to myself, like being like, I'll do one social outreach each day with a new person that I meet at college, like asking people to go and study together, go and get a coffee. Um, and that's been like a good small goal to work towards, but it's definitely interesting because I've gotten to this point where I'm very complacent and content with being with myself almost to a fault. Like I can 100% navigate and keep my mental health stable and comfortable and good when I'm just interacting with myself. But when I interact with others, whether it's family members or friends, I'm like, oh, it's a little bit uncomfortable in a good and a bad way. Like it makes you more happy. It makes you feel more connected and validated, but there's also the uncertainty. So pushing myself outside of my comfort zone that I built for myself a little bit, um, but for the best. Definitely. I think that's like such a big part of the journey is that we do all this work on ourselves and we're like, I'm so good and I'm so stable. And then we're put in these situations, like either friendship relationships or romantic relationships. And it's like, whoa, this is like a whole other thing. And I'm triggered in ways that are really different than when I'm just with myself. Absolutely. No, um, my, my boss um, for the podcast that I edit, Um, she always says that we grow in relationships. And I think it's interesting because I didn't have the capacity to grow in relationships for a really long time. Like I was just needing to grow 
to be able to function in life by myself. So now that it's like, okay, we got that down pat. It's like, okay, we're growing in relationships now. And that's definitely a lot more uncomfortable, but um, we're, we're always growing and if we're not progressing, we're digressing. And I'm at the point where I have to accept like, okay, the growth is coming in relationships. That's where I'm outside of my comfort zone now. It's necessary, um, but it's, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. I like, I was thinking today, just listening to some of your story and we'll get into that in a, in a second, but I think it's just like doing the work that you did on yourself so young is going to set you up so much for relationships. Because if you look at so many relationships in our society, people never do that work. And then they get into these relationships and, you know, become codependent because they never learned how to function and be really strong and stable and like emotionally regulate on their own. Yeah, no, totally. It's funny. I feel like I'm in a very odd spot. I agree with you there. And I keep bringing this up in therapy, how I go into like my family relationships. Like I'll come home from college and I'll be in this like position where I feel like I'm so more enlightened than everyone else, which is really not a good headspace. Like I get on this like high chair and I'm like, this is really ineffective. This dynamic could use some work. Like, do you realize how you're showing up in this relationship? My family and friends are like, Sadie, you have to stop. Like, this is so annoying and self-righteous. But I, because I did do all that self-work at such a young age and I feel I'm like a very observant person. Um, And again, I've like spent a lot of time with myself. So when I go into other interactions, I'm like very keenly aware of how things are, are happening and how I'm, how they're making me uncomfortable. And so I'll like go into these interactions and I'll be like, wow, this could really use some work or like, you should really shift that. People are like, we don't, we don't want that feedback, but <laughs> thank you for bringing it up. I know I'm the same way. I'm like a very observant person, just like going into a new workplace or a new like social setting. I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. weird that that person acted that way to that comment from that other person. Like, what does that mean? And like, what is the greater like social structure here? So I think that can be really interesting. And when you've done a lot of work on yourself, it's like a balance of observing, but not, you know, giving unsolicited advice or feedback. (laughs) No, it's definitely been really weird, like being at college and moving away from home for a couple of months and then going back into that dynamic and feeling like I have more insight but them not wanting to hear that insight. And so it's definitely a funny, a funny dynamic to be in, but yeah. Yeah, definitely later in the episode, I definitely want to talk to you about like college mental health and high school mental health and risk factors. Cause I like, I wish I had, would have had a resource like your podcast in college. Cause I had such a bad <laughs> mindset and <laughs> I think there's so many risk factors, but I'd love to just, you know, get more into your story. Like you know, you have an amazing podcast and this amazing resource and it all was kind of birthed from your kind of intense mental health struggles. So, you know, when did that kind of start for you and when did it kind of get to a point where you realized you, you know, weren't okay and needed help? Yeah, I think it's interesting. There's like two different narratives. There's the narrative that I can piece together looking back and having the emotional separation of going through these things where I'm like, wow, this belief system really set me up to be in a bad spot. And these relationship dynamics weren't helping versus being in the experience. I just had no idea what was going on, except for I was in eighth grade and freshman year. And I felt like I couldn't remember a time when I wasn't depressed. I was miserable all the time. I hated every aspect of my life. I felt really alone. Um, And so that was what I was experiencing. Now, looking back, I can pinpoint a couple of different things. The first is the belief systems that I was navigating the world through. I had a really strong belief that I was serving of love, which now I 
very strongly believe that everyone is deserving of love and compassion and validation just innately, regardless of what they've done or what different achievements they have. Like you just are deserving of love as you are when you're born, et cetera. Um, I believe that I would never be good enough for my parents. I didn't think that I would ever be worthy of their love, which is a really tough spot for a kid to be in because your world as a teenager and as a child is really um, shaped by your parents. They're, they're your role models. They're like Superman and Superwoman or like whatever your parental dynamics look like. And so to believe that you'll never be good enough for them is does not great things to your mental health. Um, I believed once I started to understand that I was depressed, I didn't believe that I was deserving of being depressed because I didn't go through a big trauma. There was no big loss. There was no outstanding reason for why I should be so miserable. I had a roof over my head. I had a family unit that was intact. I had all these resources at my fingertips and yet I was severely, severely depressed. Um, and then as I continued to go through treatment, because there wasn't a reason that I was depressed and I didn't believe I was deserving of love, my self-confidence and self-esteem was absolutely shot. I believed that treatment would never work for me. I thought I was destined to be depressed for the rest of my life. I thought that that was just what my life was going to look like. I understood that for other people, they could have this 180 of their mood and their outlook on life, that treatment would work for them. I thought I was truly the outlier. And so when you're navigating the world with such a dismal outlook and such strong belief systems, every interaction is just your brain is going to be looking for the circumstantial evidence that you're not good enough. You're not where you're supposed to be. Um, you're not loved. You're not cared for, et cetera. And so having those belief systems be at play for years led to a really extreme depression. And all I ever wanted was to be loved and validated and seen. And I didn't feel that way. And so the more depressed I got, the more I tried to feel validated and seen and loved. And so I developed a lot of really maladaptive coping mechanisms around that, whether it was self-harm or suicidality. Um, I was in and out of the hospital a lot. Um, and the common thread there was just really wanting that validation that someone saw that I was in pain, that they could see I was suffering in a really big way and that my life was subjectively really hard. Um, and so that was a really interesting spot to be in. It was a really uncomfortable spot. And I, again, had that core belief that treatment wasn't going to work for me. So when I was at home during my eighth grade and freshman year, I tried everything that you can imagine, whether it was group therapy, individual therapy, outpatient family therapy. Um, I was hospitalized four times, um, really anything and everything you can imagine to target the depression and anxiety I was experiencing. We did, and it wasn't working. And so my parents became pretty aware that we were going to have to try something different and that something different was a residential program and something away from home where I could get more support. And so they did a ton of research and they found this program called Three East at McLean Hospital. And what made this program unique was that it was evidence-based. It showed statistical differences in depression and anxiety and self-harm and suicidality and familial dysfunction. People that went through dialectical behavioral therapy and at this program would come out with lower rates of all those things that they were struggling with. And so that was what made it different from talk therapy, where it wasn't like what you put in, what you get out. Hopefully you're a good match with your therapist. It was like, it was a very by the book um, structure. You were learning certain skills. You were doing a certain um, hierarchy of therapy with um, addressing the life-threatening issues. And then you would go into things that were 
getting in the way of you living your life worth living. And then you were creating your life worth living. Um, and so they found this program. It was the best, the best. Um, McLean hospital is the number one psychiatric hospital in the U S um, it is a Harvard affiliated program. They, they know what they're doing. And whenever anyone asks for recommendations for treatment for those kinds of things, I always direct them there because that was the program that changed and saved my life. I went in severely suicidal, depressed for years, not remembering what it felt like to wake up and feel joy. And then 14 weeks later, after a ton of self intensive self-work and a lot of support from other people, I left no longer feeling depressed every minute of the day. I stopped being suicidal. I was able to cope with the anxiety I was experiencing. I started to build a relationship with my parents. Um, so there was a huge shift there and that was a game changer. And the, the shift there took place because when I started that program, I had this conversation with a group of clinicians. I went into my intake and one of them, I actually had him on the podcast, which was a really full circle moment. His name is Dr. Geary. And he looked at me and he said, do you want to be here? I was like, no brainer. Absolutely not. Like I've been told this is what I have to do. This is my next step in treatment. Like I told I can't be at home anymore, but I don't want to be here. Um, and I also looked at him, I looked at all these highly qualified clinicians that were, um, Harvard professors and they were working at the best program in the world. And I said, this isn't going to work. Like I am meant to be depressed forever. Like I, I get that you work with other girls that you can help, but I can't be helped. It's just, I've tried DBT before. It's not going to work. And he said, in different words, but he said, I love that for you, but that's not how it works. <laughs> like you are the poster child. You're coming in with the standard depression, anxiety, suicidality. This is what we do. This is what we're experts at. DBT, the data, the research shows that it will work and it's not going to work unless you have the wisdom to trust the process, to invest in the process and to believe that this will work for you. Um, and so I, I took a day to think about it and I, for the first time in my treatment journey, had enough self-compassion to want to get better and to be, have enough self-compassion to be willing to give myself the chance of living a life that I loved. Um, I cultivated enough trust in the clinicians to help me. I hadn't trusted that anyone would be able to help me or wanted to help me. And so I made that shift in my mentality, um, and I also saw, saw the wisdom and the treatment and I believed that it would work. I believed that they would be able to help me. I believed that DBT was an evidence-based treatment and that I was going into it with an open mindset and so it would work. And that, that shift was, was a game changer. It allowed me to fully engage in the skills I was learning to actually start building relationships that helped my mental health. It allowed me to see those measurable shifts in depression, anxiety, and suicidality. And so that was really what was a game changer for my mental health. And I did tons of skills education. I worked on building my relationships. I worked on shifting my daily habits so that they helped my mental health rather than hurt it. Um, and at the end of those 14 weeks, it really was a 180. And I ended up doing a year and a half, a year, 14, wow. I ended up doing 14 months at a therapeutic boarding school after that to kind of continue the progress that had been made. And then um, that kind of year and a half marker, I realized that I had done what everyone said was possible, which was that I was living a life that was worth living and that I looked forward to things and I really did love my life. Um, and the year and a half before that point, that, that concept was so foreign and I didn't believe it was possible. 
I thought it would never be true. And so I wanted to share that with people that if I, this person who so firmly believed that I wasn't deserving of love or a life worth living, that treatment wouldn't work. If I could make that happen, then any teenager could. And so I started, she persisted to share that journey, to share what worked. Everything went right on my treatment journey. I had access to the best, the best clinicians. I learned amazing skills. I had so many resources that so many teens don't have access to. I was able to take time off from school to be able to focus on my makeup, to be able to focus on my mental health. Um, And I knew that wasn't accessible to everyone. So I wanted to share that with a larger audience and, and try and help people avoid going through the suffering that I went through um, because I would never wish that on anyone. And so I started the podcast and we're now almost three years into it, which is crazy, but it really became a, a resource for teens um, talking about how they can take control of their mental health, take ownership of their journey um, and use these evidence-based skills, treatments, tips, and tricks um, and hear from experts, other individuals sharing their mental health stories online, um, and then sharing from my experience to really just create that, that well-rounded resource, um, for teen mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like such a valuable and powerful mission. Cause I think with hearing your story too, I just, I know there's so many teens that don't have access to impatient and like all these other things. And like your podcast really serves as such an amazing, like, you know, lead into treatment and lead into like all these like big topics for people that maybe aren't able to access them. And I, I think the core beliefs are so important. And in my like mental health journey, um, it was more of a from trauma PTSD kind of experience, but a really big turning point moment for me as well was realizing that I had stopped feeling like I was deserving of being happy. Like I thought I deserved to suffer. And that's a really big moment when you realize that you don't feel like you deserve happiness. And I remember when I was going through my healing journey, I like had a little post-it note, like actually on this mirror. And it said like, belief is the most powerful part of healing. And I so stand by like what the clinician said at McLean. If if you're not choosing it for you and you don't believe that it's going to work, it's never going to work. Yeah. No, I love what you said there about how you had that same belief system shift. And the more I talk with people about their mental health journeys, especially on the podcast, the more I realize that the surface level, um, the symptoms we display, how we present the different maladaptive coping mechanisms, like that's what really separates us. But when you break it down to the core emotions, the core beliefs, a lot of those are universal. So that's why I love talking on the podcast about mental health challenges and depression, anxiety as emotions, because everyone has experienced depression to some degree at some point in their life. Everyone experiences anxiety to some degree at some point in their life because emotions are meant to keep us alive. Emotions from a survival and um, evolutionary perspective serve a purpose. Um, Depression means that something is out of alignment, that you're not living um, in line with your values or or your potential. Something's not right that's not allowing you to be the best version of yourself. It's a warning sign that like something's not going right here, whether it's a relationship or or the way you're navigating life through your habits of daily living, your routine, your belief systems. Um, anxiety is the warning sign that there's, there's a threat. And so some of us get into that point where we're having the warning sign go off when the threat really isn't there. But when you break it down, it's the evolutionary purpose and the cause of it means that 
a lot of us have experienced that feeling before. And so we can empathize, we can validate, we can relate to each other because we've experienced those emotions and those belief systems. And validation is such a powerful tool in healing and connection and growth in your mental health journey. And so I, I think it breaks down a lot of stigma when we can approach it from an emotion perspective. I think it brings a lot more validation and connection to people's journeys when we break it down that way. Um, and it also gets rid of that barrier that people get in their head about where they're like, oh, my mental health isn't bad enough. I don't need treatment. I don't need therapy. Like it's not at that point. Um, and doing that comparison really doesn't serve you in any way. <laughs> like you'll never be experiencing someone else's mental health. You'll never be in their shoes. You'll never be in their head. So why would you compare your experience to theirs? Like it just doesn't serve you at all. So when we focus um, on mental health from that emotion and belief perspective, you can't be like, well, it's not at that point yet because you're having the same emotions, you're having the same beliefs. So why not utilize those resources? And I think that's a, a really powerful way to look at mental health that I feel like we're not doing enough at this point. Yeah, I I feel like when I was struggling with my mental health, I was like, I want to absorb as many theories and ideas, you know, in psychology and neuroscience, but also like in spirituality and like just all these different types of perspectives that could explain what I'm experiencing. And the evolutionary perspective helped me a lot as well of like, maybe the problem is that I'm actually avoiding what these warning signs are telling me. And the only way I'm going to get better is if I listen to the, like what my depression is saying, if I listen to what I'm feeling and what these beliefs are telling me and learn from them and learn to create new beliefs, but by avoiding and stuffing so many emotions and so many things down for so long, that was never going to help me heal. And I, I have so much compassion for people that start like their journey of healing and recovering from things. Cause opening that door, when you've pressed so much down, it's like a tidal wave of absolutely emotions <laughs> to process. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And it, it just illuminates and showcases how lacking our emotion education is. Like I didn't learn about the fact that emotions have an evolutionary need until I was like deep in treatment. Now I'm learning about it in like my college psych classes, but the fact that we don't learn about that in middle school and high school, and we don't learn that emotions are trying to tell us things. And if you're feeling anger, this is how you cope with it. Versus if you're feeling anxiety, this is how you cope with it. And there are primary and secondary emotions. So if you're feeling anger, you're actually probably feeling something else a little bit deeper, which is causing you to be angry. And so the fact that that's not just integrated into our education system is causing a lot of pain and suffering for a lot of people. And that's something that I, again, wish there was more growth around because it decreases stigma. It allows people greater access to resources. Um, so there's so much room to grow within the mental health field, but I think that's a big one um, that you learn as you go through your mental health journey. But I wish we learned er earlier on. Yeah, I, th I think our society would be so much healthier if we kind of like had a model of like mental wellness and we just, you know, raise kids as even if there wasn't a problem, like how can we, you know, encourage healthy mental health and like emotion regulation? Like, you know, we think of all the stupid things that we learned in high school and middle school that I don't think about at all anymore. And it's mm -hmm. like, why did no one teach me how to be with my mind? Like, why was there no teaching on just how to cope with the thoughts and the feelings and the experiences that I have every day as a human. Yeah.
no, there's there's so much room for growth there. And we're we're in the right direction. We're definitely moving towards where we need to be. There's been so much growth and progress over the past couple hundred of hundreds of years, but there's still there's still room to grow and to improve. Definitely. And I'm curious from your experience too, like I know you said in your story you feel like there wasn't really a cause and it was kind of a gradual progression. Like, how do you think? Because it sounds like kind of the root of it was these core belief systems. Do you think potentially as a child you did have this kind of like high self-esteem and high self-worth mindset and it kind of just gradually started to deteriorate or kind of what did that look like for you? Yeah, I think it's interesting. When I was at like my lowest of lows, one thing that really contributed to that and made it really difficult to get out of that spot was I didn't remember anything different. So when I was a child, of course, I remember being happy at some point or another, like that must have happened. But I remembered feeling invalidated a lot of the time. I remember not feeling seen or heard. Um, and I'm, I'm one of four kids, so things were always crazy and everything was always happening. Um, but I was also someone that was really uncomfortable by when I felt my emotions, they were always very big and overwhelming. Like when I would feel embarrassed at school or when I was like called out by a teacher that would be like, can I talk to you about something? Like my eyes would just like well up with tears because it'd be so overwhelming. So I always felt my emotions really strongly. And so that meant that I I tried to shut them off and I tried to avoid them because it was just such an overwhelming experience. And so because I wasn't expressing those emotions, because I wasn't asking for, for help in navigating them, I wasn't able to get them validated, whether that was with um, my parents, especially, or with friends. And so not having those emotional needs met really led to that experience of a feeling, feeling depressed, feeling isolated, feeling not seen. Um, and as I continue to unpack my family relationships, I can pinpoint more and more how I didn't feel seen or validated as I, as I grew up and in that environment. Um, and so that definitely led to that as well, but it was just really slowly over time gathering that circumstantial evidence that I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel like I would ever be enough. Um, whether it was being told that I needed to do better in school, that I should be doing more, um, with high school applications and college applications. Um, and all of that just really built up over time. Um, but a lot of it came down to my emotional sensitivity and then the belief systems that formed as a result and not being able to advocate to get my emotional needs met. Um, and so having those needs unmet really had a lot of consequences. Yeah. And that makes me think a lot of like in the more trauma PTSD world, there's like a concept called like CPTSD where it's like complex PTSD and growing up in child like hood homes where there's a lot of trauma and that that is a more complex thing for people to treat because those children didn't really develop a personality outside of like the trauma and abuse that they experienced because it was so young. And I think not having a baseline of happiness to get back to and remembering that is a really, you know, a really big challenge for treatment when you can't kind of remember getting back to that. And Another thing too, like you said, I think the people in our society that are emotional and highly sensitive and highly empathetic, like our society is not really made for those people. And I think it it takes a lot of self-work to get to a place of like what I always needed was to just like know being myself was okay. And like that was what I needed to know the whole time and how to deal with 
these parts of myself and just like love these parts of ourselves, but our, our society is so avoidant of emotions. If you're a big feeler, it's inherently wrong and inherently something that's shut off and then turns into all these mental health problems later down the line. Yeah, no, I really love what you said about how not knowing what you're working towards in treatment can be a really big obstacle. And that was something that was so true in my journey. I think I was very aware that I was at my rock bottom. I was at my lowest point. Like I was, I used to in DBT, you measure your emotions and your, your suicidality and your depression and anxiety every day. You have this little diary card and every single day I would report that I was at a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 for being as depressed as I'd ever felt in my life. I was at a seven or an eight constantly with my anxiety. Um, as it having been like the worst that I've ever felt in my entire life. And I was having multiple panic attacks every day. I was a nine or a 10 out of 10 for suicidality every day. That was my norm. And it'd been going on that way for months, if not years. And so for me, I was, I was aware that that was miserable. I was very aware of the fact that I was suffering, but if I were to risk getting better or trying to work on myself and trust treatment and trust that journey, it meant that things could get worse. And yeah, I was being told that I was working towards getting better, but I didn't know what that felt like. So it was like I was blindly stumbling towards a goal that I didn't fully understand. Um, And that was something that was really scary. And while I was miserable, while I was suffering in a really big way, while I hated every aspect of life, at least I knew what that felt like. At least it was comfortable. At least I'd survived it up until that point. At least I'd been there. And I didn't want to risk getting out of that point because if it had gotten worse than that. I didn't know if I'd be able to survive it. If I didn't know if I'd be able to get through it, I didn't know if I'd be able to cope. And so I was miserable. I I was suffering, but at least I knew what that felt like. At least that was comfortable. And so I stayed in that spot for a really long time. Um, and, and I'm so glad I decided to take the leap of faith and work towards a goal that I didn't fully understand, but I on the podcast advocate a lot, the idea of like researching and exploring what your life could look like. Because I was so aware of what my life felt like, it was miserable, I was suffering, but I didn't really think about the idea of what would my life look like if I was happy, or if I was living my life worth living, like, okay, what would I do in the morning when I wake up? What books would I be reading? What movies would I, would, would I be watching? What would my family relationships look like? What would my friendships look like? Where would I go to school? What would I do for work? What would I do in my free time? I didn't explore that. I didn't. Um, research it. I didn't even think about that. And I feel like that's something that people forget to do or they don't know to do. And so I love giving the advice of kind of building your like mood board or your inspiration for your life worth living and having that as a goal to work towards um, because it's a lot more grounded. It's a lot more of a foundation for you to take steps towards than just the vague idea of being happy. So listening to podcasts that talk about wellness and self-growth, watching movies or TV shows that showcase different parts of your life that, that you admire, that you enjoy on following different people on social media that make you feel happy and boost your mood and have daily practices that that you admire or look, look up to, um, I think is something really powerful that can help you get out of that space of like, I know there's a goal I need to be working to, but I don't know what it looks like. Yeah, I think what you said about the comfort piece is really powerful and a really big barrier for healing because we're, we're comfortable in the pain that we know and we've adapted these coping strategies that have kept us safe for so long and they've like run their course and they're no longer working. And 
for me and in my journey, like my coping strategy had been, you know, perfectionism. Like if I look this certain way, if I act this certain way, if I shove my emotions down and I achieve all these things, everything in my life will be okay. And I never have to deal with anything if everything's perfect and letting go of that and letting things be messy and letting life be complicated. And, you know, it's like, I don't know. I kind of like think of it as like a a raft in a river and like letting go of the raft. And it's, it's a really hard thing to choose change when you felt comfort in the, the pain and the misery of what you're experiencing. And I think it's, it was interesting in my journey and a big kind of part of my story was after this, like really big trauma I experienced, I can remember a conversation with my dad and he was like, you're not the same person anymore. You used to default to happiness and now you default to misery and you're not the same person anymore. And like that stark of like, a, you're right. Like <laughs> I'm not the same person anymore. And I, I think ha- at least knowing that I was that person before helps, but when you're in that place, it's like, how did I, how did I get here? How did life get so bleak and dark and sad? Um, but I'm very happy for both of us that we have these lives that we're building now. And I know you're so young and already being like so intentional with everything. And I'm just, I'm super excited to see how college and how everything goes for you. I think it's just going to, I don't know, it's going to be super amazing, but I wanted to ask more about like specifics on DBT. I know you love DBT and talk about it a lot. Like I'd love to hear more about like, you know, kind of some of the theories behind it and why it was such a helpful therapy for you at McLean. And it's so funny talking about McLean because I used to work there and I did research on depression. So it feels very like, oh my God, that's, I literally <laughs> didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that's very very interesting. Yeah. I used to live in Boston. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. I feel like one of my little talking points, whenever I talk about going to McLean is that it's what girl interrupted is based on like the girl from girl interrupted went to McLean and people know that a lot more than they would know McLean itself. Um, but it's, it's, it's an amazing program. They do amazing things. And, um, yeah, I can't speak highly of it enough. Yeah. Yeah. It is funny. Cause I, I think I remember listening to an, another podcast talking about girl interrupted. It definitely does have like a weird energy when you go to it though. Cause it's in the middle, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And you're like, oh. you're at a mental hospital. Like yeah. that's not romanticize it. Like you are in treatment. Like it, it sucks. Treatment isn't fun, but it's, you got to do what you got to do. And the, the alternative being in treatment is so much better. Um, your question about DBT. So dialectical behavioral therapy is what DBT stands for. Um, it was developed by a woman named Marsha Linehan. Um, I want to say it was in the nineties. It's been around for a while. She developed it for adults that were struggling with borderline personality disorder and extreme suicidality. Um, and these were patients that a lot of therapists didn't want to have on their caseload because they were really risky patients. They took a lot out of the therapist to work with them because there wasn't a willingness to want to get better. There wasn't a belief that they could get better. There was a lot of suicide attempts, a lot of suicidality. Like it was a dangerous patient to have on your caseload. It wasn't like the standard, I'm feeling anxious. Let's do some deep breathing. Great. I feel better. Like it was a really big, heavy, overwhelming individual to navigate. Um, therapy with. And so 
she herself actually did struggle with borderline personality disorder, which is why she developed DBT. And she has this amazing memoir um, about it, um, about her struggle and why she started DBT. And it's either called Building My Life Worth Living or Life Worth Living, um, but it's by Marsha Linehan. You can look it up. Um, it has this red cover on it. I wish I knew the exact name, but if you want to hear more about her story, um, that's the that's the book to go to. But sh so she developed it for that that patient demographic. And so I was a teenager that was struggling with depression and anxiety. I was not an adult that was struggling with borderline personality disorder. But the reason why it works for teenagers that are struggling with depression and anxiety. The reason why it's now been adapted for just normal anxiety, it's been adapted for OCD, all these different things is because individuals that are struggling with suicidality and borderline personality disorder have things like extreme insecurity, struggles with self-confidence, um, uh, unhealthy relationships. Um, the suicidality again is a big thing and these really big, heavy, overwhelming emotions. And a lot of these things are common threads between a lot of these different struggles. Um, so what dialectical behavioral therapy is, there's the two parts which are in the name. There's the dialectics, which is this belief that two things that are seemingly opposite can be true at the same time. So there's a bunch that are at the core of DBT, but one is that um, like you're trying your best and you can still do better. Um, another good one is that two people's um, lived experiences and their truths can both be true at the same time, even though they might not be the same. Um, and so it's things like those that are at the core of DBT, and it's that nuance, it's that belief that things can um, have more than one reason or more than one explanation that um, really is at the core of the the therapy. And so the behavioral part is what I think is a lot more universal. I love that mindset. I think so many people can benefit from implementing it, but the behavioral part is really what it's known for. And so DBT has a couple of different components. There's the skills education, which is really behavior-based. There's the therapy. Um, and if you're an adolescent, you're doing family therapy as well. There's like some group therapy where you're working with other teens or other adults if you're an adult. Um, and then there's skills coaching. So you have access to a therapist if you need support in different situations. The skills education part is what I share a lot on the podcast and what is really universally helpful. And that's where the behavioral part comes in. So what it is, is a giant manual binder book of skills um, that teach you how to effectively live life. So when we're struggling in a really big way, we're trying to get our emotional needs met. We develop a lot of abnormal and ineffective coping mechanisms. We get really far away from that point of functioning effectively. So whether that's self-harm, suicidality, um, manipulative relationships, um, using people, there's just so many different things and ways that we aren't coping effectively. And so what DBT, DBT does is it like reteaches you how to live life effectively. So it's broken down into these different modules of mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, um, and emotion regulation. So you're relearning how to tolerate distress. You're relearning how to regulate your emotions. You're relearning how to be mindful. Um, and you're relearning how to be interpersonally effective. And all these things are core parts of living an effective, balanced life. Um, the mindfulness piece is something that's really unique to DBT and isn't necessarily in all types of therapy, but it is based on, on Buddhism and, and mindfulness and um, meditation. And so the idea of being present in the here and now, um, and it's a, it's a huge part of DBT, um, and there's a lot of different skills in that module. Um, 
Interpersonal effectiveness is another one which is just so universally applied or used. Um, and those skills teach you how to validate others and improve your relationship. They teach you how to advocate for your objective. They teach you how to maintain your self-respect, um, which are things that you probably are already doing. But if you're not, you learn how to do them again. Things in emotion regulation are learning how to accumulate positives, take care of your physical health so you reduce your emotional vulnerability. Um, build mastery over skills that you can improve your sense of pride. And um, there's just so many skills in that module, which you're probably already doing. And then distress tolerance, it's how to deal with the big, heavy emotions. So whether it's distraction or pausing in the um, situation, taking a minute and then re-entering back into it or riding the wave of emotion. So all of these things that most people are doing, but if you're really struggling, you've probably forgotten how to do. And the skills are a game changer. Um, and they're they're very tactile. You're being told exactly what to do. And I loved that because I've been in therapy sessions before where I'm like, what do I do? And the therapist is like, what do you think you should do? I'm like, Kid, no, <laughs> I get so frustrated. I'm like, I'm in therapy, so you can help me. Why aren't you telling me what to do? Um, and of course, there's wisdom and beauty and figuring it out for yourself. But for me, when I was like, I am having a panic attack, I can't breathe, the walls are closing in, what do I do? The answer was, you're going to do an ice bath. You're going to lower your physical symptoms of distress so that you can emotionally cope through this. Or I am so depressed, I don't know what to do. What do I do? You're going to do the opposite of what you're feeling. You're going to get out of bed. You're going to go on a walk. You're going to engage with other people. And you're going to do the opposite of what your emotions are telling you to do. And so for someone that's really struggling, that is like, I just don't know what to do please help me in some way. The, the very specific skills education of DBT is something that's really comforting and really nice to have um, because you're not in that like, okay, what's going to happen? I'm blindly going towards this goal. It's like, these are the skills you're using and they will get you to this point. Um, so DBT, again, is a really intensive treatment, but these skills can be used on a daily basis. I still use them on a daily basis. Um, and, and the mindsets of dialectics and mindfulness are other things that can be used on a daily basis um, without the whole therapy group therapy part of it. Yeah, I knew like a little bit about the like dialectical therapy from undergrad and learning about it but like it was so great to like kind of hear you break it down and as you were talking you're like well most people know these skills and as you were saying that I was like I can think of a lot of people I would like to go through dialectical yes. behavioral therapy yes. in my life it was so um, funny when I got out of treatment they kind of did tell you about this but you're in a dbt bubble where all of these people are being really effective everyone knows how to navigate relationships to either get their self-respect met validate the other person get their objective met everyone is doing like deep breathing and using all these skills and you go back to normal life not where everyone's not learning all these skills and you're like what is happening why is everyone doing these things like you're there's a shock of like what is going on and so it's totally true like I remember the same thing I was like why isn't everyone doing dbt everyone should be doing dbt and I just didn't understand but it's again something that is a very structured um program which is why not a lot of people do it unless they're really struggling but the skills are so universally useful which is why I like to share them on the podcast definitely and I I think I think like we're getting a lot better and there's like a lot more podcasts or even like mini course and resources on like emotion regulation and mindfulness and all these things that are like, you know, parts of DBT and it's definitely getting better. But as you were saying that, I was like, I feel like I was kind of like finding DBT aspects on my own, but I, 
like having a comprehensive way and like therapy would be, you know, so nice. And like I said, like I can think of so many people that, especially the interpersonal communication one, I can think of a lot of people that would benefit from better interpersonal communication skills. And there are tons you can like buy the skills menu on Amazon. There are podcasts that just go through every single skill like you would if you're in DBT and you're going to the skills education class. So there's a lot of resources out there if you want to learn about the skills. And it's, it's, yeah, there's definitely ways to do it. But for the most part, the standard way people learn about DBT is going through that six-week comprehensive treatment protocol um, in the therapeutic setting. Definitely. Well, maybe I'll link like a podcast that goes through all of them or some of yours in there. So if people are interested, they can like get started on that. But the thing I kind of wanted to end off and I wanted to say this first is that I think your experience with having so much family therapy was, I'm sure it was difficult at times, but probably such a big benefit because I I know, you know, I didn't start therapy until I was 22. And at that point, like so much of who you are was formed by those relationships with your parents. And I think it would have been so beneficial to actually have them come in and be like, remember all these things and these narratives you said, and this is why I'm acting this way. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I guess I'm just curious about your family and then we'll kind of go on to teen like risks and high school and college, you know, like what was that experience of doing kind of that family therapy with your parents? And, you know, was it hard to be like, when you did this, like, I I can just imagine as a parent, like, did your parents ever feel like, you know, guilt or blame for like you feeling the way you did? Like, I, I'm sure that must've been really hard to go through as a parent as well. Yeah. It's interesting. So before treatment and before I was in treatment, I should say, my parents hadn't really done like family therapy or individual therapy. It was really a new foreign concept for them. However, for me to be in these programs, whether it was intensive outpatient, whether it was McLean, they had to be participating. It was like a key part of the program. And so I think McLean does a beautiful job of it. I think they've done um, a really great job integrating it into their program because part of signing on to have your kid go to through East means that the parents go to a skills education group once a week. So they're learning the same DBT skills that you are. Um, and they're also getting validation from other parents whose kids are in the program, which is super powerful. Um, you, your parents are also agreeing to do family therapy with you and your therapist once a week. My voice just like kicked up while I was talking. Um, <laughs> They're agreeing to do family therapy with you once a week. And they're also agreeing to invest in you and your relationship. And McLean makes it very clear that part of the healing and treatment process is like that family-based approach. Because when you're a teen, you're going back into your family environment. Like whether it's your parents that are um, like causing you to feel invalidated, whether it's something else, like if you go back into the exact same environment after doing tons of treatment, if nothing changes at home, you're, you're just going to revert and relapse into those old patterns and belief systems. So McLean really emphasizes shifting and helping those relationships grow and improve getting out of unhealthy patterns, um, which I think is something that's really important and some treatment programs don't necessarily do. And it's again, unique to adolescence because you live at home, your parents are paying for the program in most cases. Um, so they have to be a part of it. Um, but it, it was definitely an interesting experience. It's something that's very uncomfortable. I sometimes will still have 
not now because I'm in college, but when I was still at home, even years after treatment, when I'd want to bring something up to my parents, sometimes they'd come into a session and it would still be uncomfortable. Like I wouldn't like it. I wouldn't enjoy it. It's not, a, it's not a fun thing. Um, but I think what was unique about McLean was that my parents went into it really willing. They were open to learning the skills. They were open to exploring the process. Um, and so it allowed our relationships to really grow and shift. And so my dad learned about validation for the first time, which helped our relationship so, so, so much. He went from trying to get me out of bed by playing symphony music as loud as the Alexa would go and being like, Sadie, if you don't go to school today, the rest of your life will be on a downward spiral, which was so invalidating when I was like, <laughs> comatosively depressed um, to being like, I can see that you're in a lot of pain. Like, I don't get what you're going through. I've never been there, but I see that you're in pain and I'm here for you. So that was a complete shift and help us helped us have a really great foundation for our relationship so that we could then work through other problems. Um, it was definitely, again, an uncomfortable and, and difficult process. I feel like I was crying in almost all of the family therapy sessions because such big, overwhelming emotions come out. Um, but there, there was moments where I'd be like, I would tell them, I'd be, say that I, I never have felt good enough for you. And I don't think I'll ever be good enough for you. And so to say that to your parents is really scary um, or to tell them that I didn't feel deserving of love. And they didn't know that before. So there was just really that more open line of communication um, that that happened, which was really powerful. Um, there's something else I wanted to mention that I just forgot. What was it? Yeah. Let's see. Um, I think something else that was really cool about my parents specifically was that they were really my biggest advocate throughout the treatment process. Like they were the ones that were making sure that I was going to a good program and I was supported by good individuals and that I was making progress. And so that was something that was really amazing to now see on the other side of things and have such an appreciation for. Um, but yeah, um, I remember what I was going to say. Um, Another good example of like a family therapy exercise and what that was like was that I struggled so much to be vulnerable with them at all. I believed that I would never be good enough for them. And so if I was vulnerable, I thought I would just be making myself less good enough for them. So I wouldn't share my emotions. I wouldn't share when I was depressed. I wouldn't share what I was feeling or thinking. And so we did this um, game of sorts where I would just blurt out my emotions, even if it was like socially not appropriate. So we'd be at dinner. And if I was really anxious, I'd be like anxiety. And so that was how we like started to build that vulnerability and open line of communication um, by really taking small steps. And so I think there's something really beautiful and amazing about adolescent treatment when both the teen and the parents come into it with a willing and open mindset. And my relationship with my parents is definitely not perfect. I really do believe that our parents are never the parents that we want or deserve. Like they're never going to be the perfect parents for us. And that's okay. Like there's some grieving that happens when you realize that. But once you accept that, it's a lot more freeing to be able to be in that environment. And our relationship isn't perfect. I, I love being at college and having that separation and not living at home anymore. Um, but there was also a lot of growth that would, was made um, in therapy and, and after the fact. And I have so much appreciation for them for being willing to go through that process and support me and being open to it and learn about themselves and push themselves, which is something they probably wouldn't have wanted to do um, on their own accord. And so, yeah, there's a, there's so much there, um, to, to unpack and go into, but it was a key part of my treatment and something I'm grateful for. Yeah. I just, 
I don't know. I just like, I just like feel it in my heart. I'm like, that's just like going in and like having parents like invest and be willing to look at that. And like, I just can imagine that transformed your family relationships so much. And I also just have so much compassion, I guess, for myself and for other people. I actually had a friend that did a program at McLean that had borderline personality disorder. And um, like one parent just like wasn't willing to do that. And like, I think that is the case. And like, sometimes both parents aren't willing. Sometimes one parent isn't willing. And, you know, it can be really hard when it's heartbreaking. Yeah. When they're honest for someone to show up for you, you're showing up for yourself and you want them to show up as well. And, and they don't. And that's where our relationship with their parents are so complicated because we expect everything from them and they can't always give that. Um, and that was, again, what I was saying where everything went right in my treatment journey. And I was so lucky for that. And that's why I really wanted to share on the podcast, all the insights and takeaways I had, because I'm so aware that not everything goes right for everyone, whether their parent can't show up or doesn't want to show up, or they don't have access to, to that environment. And so it's something that I'm, I'm aware of and grateful that everything went right. Definitely. And I think something you said, like, even if your parents aren't willing and you have these realizations in therapy and you're able to start vulnerably sharing with your parents, those things, like those are such big steps, you know, in your, in your treatment journey is to kind of tell your parents when things happen that made you feel a certain way that wasn't okay. And, you know, if your parent is like emotionally safe in that way and can validate you, that can be like a really, really big source of healing. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about all the people that maybe their parents weren't. And I think that it's really hard to like understand it, especially when you're younger, but it's like, sometimes our parents aren't perfect people and they have their own mental health issues and they have their own traumas and they have their own things. And like, sometimes their fear of looking inward is bigger than their love for you. And like, that's not okay, but like, sometimes that's the reality. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Definitely. And I guess kind of to just end off this episode, I'd love to kind of hear, I guess we can talk about high school too, but I'm curious, like, since you said you're super observant and me looking back on college now, like, you know, what are, what do you think about the the college environment? And like, I feel like it's just a breeding ground for mental health issues. Honestly, I'm curious what, what you think about that. I mean, it's really interesting. I think Penn, especially as I was, I was gearing up to move to college everyone was like Penn doesn't have the best mental health track record and it's because you have all these really highly achieving individuals who want to be the best and are in competition with each other um and so I think for me it's been really important to go in to to college and and to Penn specifically already knowing that I'm not going to be the best at at anything if not everything um like in my math class I'm not going to be the top student and I am totally okay with that um and so realizing that you don't have to be the best at everything and you're not going to be and that your best doesn't look like everyone else's um and I think another thing that I took away from my time in treatment because I got to such a bad place where I couldn't even go to school that if your mental health isn't there, then nothing is. Like if you let your mental health deteriorate so much, like to, for the point of studying for a test or to get an A in a class, 
if you can't even go to school or if you can't graduate, like what's the point that you got an A on that test or an A in that class? So it's realizing that if you don't have the foundation, then none of this is going to be long lasting. There's no longevity there. Um, so it's continuing to maintain the habits that I've put in place with my sleep and, and exercise and healthy relationships and things I'm passionate about and balance between work and school and the podcast. Um, but I think really being very, very aware and appreciative that my best isn't going to be someone else's best. And I am totally okay with my best being where it's at um, and just having balance and all of those things. Yeah, I think those are such important mindsets. And I, I wish someone would have said that to me before I went to college because I like similar-ish to Penn. I went to UNC Chapel Hill, which is a very, there. yeah, <laughs> um, great school, but everyone is very type A, high achieving, have always been, you know, the best or whatever. So it's just a breeding ground of people putting a lot of pressure on themselves. And then you throw alcohol into the mix and not sleeping and a lot of stress. And it's just people that don't have these skills. It's just like a breeding ground for not feeling good. (laughs) Yeah. And if your, your mental health isn't there, if that isn't stable, then nothing else is. If you're drinking every day to the point where you can't go to class, the college experience and being at college is no longer there because you're not going to school. If you're extremely stressed to the point where you can't show up to class, complete assignments, or just be able to function in a way that you feel good about, like nothing else is there. And so like, it's, it's like, what's the, what's the phrase? It's like a, the cost effectiveness. I don't know what the phrase is. Um, but like, at what price are you pushing yourself? And what's that happy medium of wanting to be the best version of yourself and wanting to learn and grow and improve as a student and as a person? And then where do you give yourself grace? And where do you understand that like, okay, I'm at my limit and I'm going to go to bed for the night and watch TV because we can't sit at the library and study for 48 hours straight. That's just not how it works. Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful kind of mindset and lesson. And in college, I definitely didn't have that. But when I got my master's, I think a really important mindset too, is just like connecting to like that life vision and connecting to purpose and connecting to how you want your life to feel. And at the end of the day, like in college, I didn't, I liked my classes, but I don't think I enjoyed learning because I was so caught up in achievement. And I really tried with my master's to be like, I'm here because this is a beautiful, amazing experience. And I get to learn all these incredible things. And I want to enjoy this process. I don't want to just like get an A in every class. I want to really enjoy and be present. And I think that, you know, really changes everything when you think back to how you want your life to feel and how you want your life to be and prioritize mental health and happiness kind of over everything. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, I know we're almost at time, but I just wanted to see if there's anything related to high school or those risk factors or anything you wanted to say related to that or anything just in the episode, but it's been really great, you know, having you on and diving into your story. Yeah, I think I think to wrap up, I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about teen mental health specifically is that teens are at that critical developmental period. They're more at risk for developing mental illness and mental health challenges. We see that peak of lifelong mental health challenges um, happening at like 12 to 15 years old. That's when depression develops. That's when anxiety develops. And there's a lot of different things we can attribute that to. There's a lot of risk factors. 
um, whether it's that teens aren't fully, their prefrontal cortexes aren't fully developed. So they're more likely to live out of their amygdalas and emotional part of their brain. Like they're not capable of logically thinking through things. Things affect them emotionally a lot more. They're more sensitive and things are more overwhelming. You don't have full autonomy over your life. So you can't fully create your, um, your, your community and environment that is optimal for your mental health. There's extreme amounts of stress today with social media and, and the like achievement college, high school um, narrative that's out there. And so teens are really just very highly at risk. And so they're really in need of education and resources around mental health. And so I think just when we boil it down, teens, teens are a really at risk popu- population and we forget that sometimes, but it's so important to advocate for them and to increase resources for them um, to set them up for like a lifeline, a lifetime um, success for their, for their mental health. Definitely. And I think that's like really well said and well put. And, you know, I can remember the way I felt about emotions in high school and it was like, I didn't know that they would end. I just felt like if I'm sad today, this is forever. And I don't know when this ends ever. (laughs) No, it's just like, everyone has that universal experience of being like being a teenager sucked. Like everyone can relate to that. It's because you're just living a different life. Like you're you're feeling your emotions differently. Your outlook on the world is different. Everything is just so in your face, whether it's like this test today is going to impact the rest of your life. You don't know what you want to do. Your identity isn't fully developed. Everything is so high stakes. And so it's really a universal thing that teenage years are a struggle and they're difficult and they're a challenge. And so we really need to support our teens through that because otherwise like we see the lifetime consequences of developing mental illness and mental health challenges really early on and then not ever learning to fully cope and and heal from those. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, we have the hormones of more kind of advanced adults, but our brain isn't fully developed to deal with (laughs) these feelings and these urges to be a mini adult and to interact with people relationally and like, a whole other topic, but I think like sexuality and teens and how that's talked about is really problematic and that creates lasting patterns as well. So it's just a lot of those patterns like are the foundation of how we deal with like struggles and stressors. And if we don't like address them, then that just becomes kind of our foundation moving forward. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Definitely. Well, it was so great having you on and yeah, I'm just super excited for this episode and thank you so much, Sadie. Of course. Thank you for having me.